morning. As Keith mentioned at the, the start of our service, as a church, we've been working through the Sermon on the Mount from uh, the book of Matthew, from Matthew 5 onwards. Uh, and we've been discovering what it means to be salt and light in our world, um, how to be different and how to make a difference. Uh, so this morning we're going to read Matthew 5 from verse 38 to 42, if you'd like to follow along with me. Matthew 5, verse 38 to 42. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Father God, we praise you for your word. We praise you that it is alive and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. We just pray that you'll speak to us through it this morning, challenge our hearts, um, and give us reason to want to live for you. Amen. So this uh, Sermon on the Mount that we've been working through as a church is a collection of teachings, uh, one big sermon that Jesus gave to a huge crowd of people, Um, A crowd that had followed him for miles, um, hoping to hear his teachings, see his miracles, some of them maybe even to experience his healing. And this crowd that he spoke to included his own disciples, um, specifically as well the 12 that he had chosen to experience and witness his life and ministry at an intimate level. On top of that, there was also a huge number of the most religious of Jews, the Pharisees, and leaders of the district, teachers of the law, some of them eager to hear what this great rabbi had to say, whilst some of them also hoping to find reason to challenge him or undermine him. The Pharisees had a particular fascination with the idea of trying to trip him up. And we often hear about these two groups, or these two kinds of people engaging with Jesus when we read our Bibles. But then on top of that, this crowd would also have been made up mainly, I think, by a huge group of people who were just intrigued and interested, some of them speculative, apprehensive, or some just fascinated by who this man was, this minor celebrity who was getting known. I think that we have a tendency, in my opinion, to think that Jesus was only ever surrounded by people who either loved him or people who hated him. But I doubt that to be true. I reckon that there was an awful lot of people who would just have been fairly ambivalent and apathetic to his messages and teachings. Maybe intrigued as to why he had celebrity, why why he had intrigue. But I think there would have been a lot of people who just seen a crowd that had gathered or had heard some stories about what Jesus was doing and thought, yeah, let's check that out. So therefore, I think that a large number, a significant number of the people that were there in the Sermon on on the Mount, I think that a significant number would have heard this story and not really listening to Jesus thinking, this is going to be life-changing teaching right now. 
The reason that I think that is because I think that 2,000 years ago is probably fairly similar to today. I think that that's a similar approach to how we have, the similar approach to what we have when we open up the Bible, the Word of God today. And when we read the words that Jesus spoke, yes, he was speaking to people in a, in a literal sense in Judea 2,000 years ago, but he is also speaking directly to those of us who pick it up and read it today. And 2,000 years later, it's still life-changing teaching. But quite often I wonder, and I'm speaking specifically about myself as well, are we really willing to be changed by God's word? To hear directly from God in a way that changes our lives and how we live them? I'm not sure that we, oft, that we always are. I know for a fact that I'm not always willing to be challenged or I'm not willing to be changed in my heart often when I pick up God's word. Quite often I'm not willing to read it and be impacted by it in a way that shakes me and challenges how I live my life. That allows me to live more like and be more like Jesus. To grow in my faith and my knowledge of him. As Christians we are told to look to him. To model ourselves on him. To learn from him and be like him. So for that to happen. That means hearing his words. And allowing them to inform and shape and completely change how we live. Sadly, I think, and again I am speaking about myself as well, I think we prefer comfortability. Which is a shame because the Bible is full of life-changing truths and guidance. But we have to be willing when we pick it up and when we hear from it. We have to be willing to let it speak to us and to let it shape us. I think that's probably the reality for much of the crowd that had gathered to listen to Jesus preach this message. And I really hope and have prayed in this past week that we are all willing and eager to be changed and shaped by God's word today, myself included. So far in this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has taught on adultery, murder, oaths, and he will go on to teach on what it means to love others to teach on giving and on prayer. And what Jesus was so eager to do in this sermon and in these teachings was to shape and challenge the hearts of his listeners, to have them really think about what it means to live for God. He's not laying down a set of rules, but presenting a collection of guides that say this is how God's people should live. This is how their lives should look. This is a good way. And then he also ends this entire sermon with the parable of the wise and foolish builders that I'm sure we're aware of. Telling his listeners then and then us to, today, this is important. This message is important. Build your life on this teaching. Be willing to hear it and let it change you. Build your life on my teachings. So what we read in our little section today begins, You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. 
when Jesus says, you have heard it said, he's referring to three separate instances of this saying as part of the law of Moses. They'll just be up on the screen for us. Three separate Old Testament passages in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. This phrase is written. In Exodus, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. And then in Leviticus, fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The one who has inflicted the injury must suffer the same injury. And then in Deuteronomy, show no pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. This law was given to Moses by God and for the Jews as his guideline for holy living. The law of Moses was really the law of God. For any person to be completely holy and right before God, they would have to keep all of the law. Even breaking one part of it would involve falling short of the standard that he sets for living in the world he created. That includes the Ten Commandments as well as these books of civil law. God is telling the Israelites through this law, this is how you live well in my world. These are my teachings and my standards. And the phrase eye for eye, tooth for tooth, is one that we today have probably taken and twisted to mean something very different to what it meant in these Old Testament passages. In modern usage, I think, an eye for an eye has come to mean get your revenge. Make sure you don't let that person get away with what they've done. If they have done something to you, make sure you do something back. I think that's what the phrase means to us today. But the intention behind these sayings, these laws in the Old Testament, was not to encourage revenge in any sense, but was specifically to limit escalation of violence, to stop things getting out of hand, to ensure that Jewish society didn't collapse under the weight of people constantly seeking revenge to the point of killing each other. And so therefore, if someone was attacked and lost their eye or tooth or something similar in Jewish society, they would be within their rights to pay their attacker in kind, but no more. And that's the key phrase. They would be within their rights. That's why it was included, to prevent escalation of violence, to prevent people taking justice and retribution into their own hands. As we have within us, don't we, as humans, a bit of a need to see justice done according to our own understanding of justice. Well, this was justice according to the law, the law of God. And this was how ancient society functioned for thousands of years before Jesus. And then what we read in the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus comes along with the full authority of God and takes this law, this practice, which has been established and acted upon for thousands of years and flips it on its head. You have heard it said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Slapping someone on the outside, with the outside of the right hand, onto their right cheek was and still is to this day whilst on one hand probably fairly painful was much more significantly a grave insult in the Middle East I think that we take this verse from the Bible and caricature it we say if someone slaps you 
then you must willingly and dramatically turn and present them with the offer to hit you again, confusing them, hopefully, into running away from the weird Christian that is a sucker for punishment. I think we've caricatured a really important saying into that. But it's really important for us to understand what Jesus is saying to the people in this culture and in this society before we consider what it means for us 2,000 years later. Because Jesus is highlighting that these Jews have taken God's law and have become obsessively legalistic with it. We discovered that already on, with his teachings on lust and anger. We read him say, You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And also, you have heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. In these teachings, Jesus has taken a law which was given for a good purpose to show God's people how to live according to his standards. And is highlighting that instead of using it to live holy lives, it's being used for legalism. Instead of approaching God's law with, how can we live holy lives? How can we be pleasing to God? Instead of that, it was being used for, what can I get away with? How close can I get to the line before I cross it? And so Jesus comes along and he says, you're interested in legalism and stepping as close to the line as possible. Well, I am interested in your hearts. I'm interested in what's going on inside. And when he says, turn the other cheek, he's eager that instead of God's people looking to get the justice and the retribution that they feel that they deserve, that they see an opportunity for forgiveness and reconciliation. And although the law gives them the right to demand payment in kind for what has been done wrong to them, Jesus wants to see hearts that don't seek justice, but that seek peace. And so when we are genuinely hurt or offended by someone, instead of going after the revenge that we think that we are owed, we forgive. That's harder in practice than it is to say, of course, just like almost every teaching in the Bible. And there is a good chance that as I am talking, you're probably able to bring to mind a situation where you have been wronged, legitimately wronged, or that you can bring to mind a person that has hurt you in a real way. And you may even be thinking, it's okay for you to say, but you don't know my situation. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is indicating to us what the Christian life looks like, what it means to be his followers, what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. This is his citizenship test. This is what it looks like to be a Christian. He's challenging the understanding of our right to get retribution when we are wronged and showing us that a true Christian response to being wronged is to forgive. And not only did he say it, but he showed it as well. The story of Jesus' life was that he came as the son of God into the world, that he lived a completely sinless and perfect life and then was forced onto a cross by the very people he had come to save. 
And then in doing that, he took the punishment for the sins that every single person who has ever lived has committed, and then he died for all of us. He did nothing wrong, and yet was killed by us and for us. And because of this, we can know the God that created us. Because of this, we can be forgiven. We can be made right with him and have a relationship with God because of Jesus. And so if we are going to talk about right and wrong, moral and immoral, justice and injustice, we only have to look at what mankind did to the Son of God to know that we don't have a leg to stand on. If we really want to know what forgiveness and mercy looks like, Jesus is our perfect example. He showed us by dying on a cross for us. And so therefore, what he has to say about forgiveness and mercy and how we should respond in those instances surely holds more weight than anyone else's. Even our own understandings about why we should forgive and what it means to forgive. In the same way that if you want to know about football management, you would turn to Alex Ferguson. Or if you wanted to know about cooking, you'd look to Gordon Ramsay. I mean, I could tell you what I think about those two things, but would you take my advice over those two? Of course not. So to know what forgiveness looks like, we look to Jesus. We take his example, his teachings. To know what it means to love and care for others, just look at Jesus. Jesus' message about turning the other cheek is not about laying down and taking it when someone attacks us or insults us. Jesus is absolutely not saying that we shouldn't defend ourselves from that we shouldn't defend ourselves and others from danger or violence. He's not saying that we should not hate evil and fight against deep injustices in the world or protect the vulnerable from harm. But he is eager to see God's people lay down the right to respond in kind to violence or insult. He tells this crowd, you have the right under law to seek retribution. But this is not about rights. This is about a changing of your heart. Laying down our rights for revenge and acknowledgement that he laid down his life so that we wouldn't get what we deserve. And so that means for us that when we are wronged, when we are hurt by others, when we are hurt or insulted, when we discover that someone is gossiping about us behind our back or spreading rumors about us online, when a friend or a work colleague throws us under the bus or someone at school or college acts maliciously towards us, turns others against us, when family hurt us in a way that we thought family couldn't, most of our human nature wants revenge, to pay them back in kind. Jesus is telling us here that instead of wanting retribution or scheming ways to get even, we should forgive, look for reconciliation. It's not an easy thing to do, and it's certainly not often our first response. And I'm not flippantly saying from here that it's an easy thing to do. Certainly not that I'm saying that it's easy for me. I find it really difficult not to feel deeply hurt when I'm wronged. I take insults really personally. I feel deeply aggrieved when I think someone is attacking me. 
Peace and reconciliation is rarely my go-to. But that's what I'm called to do as a Christian. I have a saviour that is telling me to do so. And I need his strength to do it. And we do that by asking for his help. Praying for patience and understanding in that moment. We are called to have changed hearts as Christians. And what's great is that we're not expected to manage that on our own. There's a great line in Psalm 51 written by David, which simply says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. That's a prayer, a great prayer, a request of the Lord. Create in me a clean heart, renew a right spirit within me. That's my prayer as I try to live like Jesus and for him. Create in me, O God, a clean heart. That's what I have to pray when my first response is revenge or retribution. That's what I have to pray when I need to show forgiveness and understanding when I've been hurt or wronged. That's what we all have to pray for us to live as Jesus wants us to live. Not seeking after our rights, but copying Jesus' example of giving up those rights in pursuit of peace. Praying that he will help us to forgive since we have been forgiven. Set an example in how to behave so that others can see the work of Jesus in us. That's what Christians are called to do. That's the example we are to give to our world around us. We need to be willing to give up our human understanding of justice and seeing justice done the way that we want it or understand it. Because we have no right to claim an understanding of justice when we have a saviour who died a completely undeserved death for our sakes. So Jesus builds on this with another couple of little teachings. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Can we have that up on the screen, please? The suggestion here is that if someone is determined to have something of yours, to give them more than they ask, even if they ask ungraciously or demand it. At this time, much of the Holy Land was under Roman rule, and it was common law that a Roman soldier could commandeer any citizen and make them do their bidding. For example, to carry their heavy gear or serve them for a time. So this is probably what Jesus had in mind when he says, if someone asks you to go a mile, then go with them too. It's almost a suggestion of killing someone with kindness. If someone demands your shirt, give them your coat as well. If a Roman soldier forces you to carry their gear for a mile, offer to carry it for two. Again, what Jesus is not doing is introducing a new set of rules to be followed legalistically, but suggest, suggesting a change of heart. Don't give to or serve other people begrudgingly, but do so willingly and with a smile and with joy. And this is not hippie Christianity. It's not a call to be walked all over, but it is a challenge to how we respond to the people around us 
especially those that don't know Jesus. This whole sermon is a guide to letting our light shine as Christians, letting people see Jesus and how we live. And so if we have an unreasonable boss at work who at times asks us to work later than our contract or a colleague that needs our input when we are already snowed under, rather than begrudgingly doing so with lots of grumbling and moaning, we do so willingly and with joy and show the love of Jesus to those people. And if we have a teacher that just constantly winds us up or seemingly picks on us over other students, rather than showing them attitude, we try our hardest to show them Jesus. We work hard, get our heads down, help to clear up at the end of lessons, be compliant, encourage others. And we don't act in certain ways out of duty because we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Instead, we see everything as an opportunity to show Jesus to the world. We are excited to be welcomed into the kingdom of heaven and serving God through our witness, to model his love to people that don't know him yet. And in our giving to, the, to, those, of us, to those who ask of us, whether that is a friend or charity or church, we ask ourselves, do I bless people with more than they ask or do I give the bare minimum? If someone asks for our help or time when they're ill or when they've lost their job or a family member, is it a pain, an inconvenience? Do we go one step further and offer more than they ask? Do we go one step further and don't even allow them to ask but take the initiative? Do we offer to visit or cook, offer lodgings, sacrifice our own comfortability and time? If someone is struggling to meet their own needs or the needs of their family, do we offer our own homes and resources and time with eagerness and willingness? Do we ask ourselves, how do I go one step further for that person in need? And if we're giving our finances to God, do we give the obligatory amount and resent that? Or do we ask, what is the most that I can give? Some of these may, seem, may possibly seem fairly specific. Some of them might seem trivial. But I think that they point us towards what Jesus is getting at with these verses. What Jesus is really interested in when we read his word is the heart behind our decision making. We have to make sure that people know us for our heart, that we live for and serve God and in doing so, show them our love for him. And if we don't, then why not? If we have been saved and bought with a price, if we have been welcomed into his family, shouldn't we live in a way that makes that truth evident, that honors the price that we've been bought for? Or do we live in a way that reveals that our heart is all about us? Do we make decisions about how we spend our time and money and energy just on things that we want or enjoy. Jesus is really, really interested in what's going on in our heart and what drives our decision making. That our motivation for everything is based less on duty, less on what we can get away with, how close we can get to the line, and is much more based upon how can I love and show love 
and model Jesus. That our entire lives and how we think and respond to people and situations should be based not on ourselves, our emotions, our indignation, our sense of justice, or our own morals. But that we should be living our lives in a way that reflects Jesus and who he is. And that we should be living in a way that shows people who he is and the difference that he makes in our lives. We're commanded as Christians, aren't we, to make disciples, to tell Jesus, to tell people about Jesus and make him known in a world that we can just see around us is in desperate need of a savior. I think one of the most effective and honest ways that we can share the gospel, that we can tell people about Jesus, is to show people in our actions and in our interactions with them. I think that there is something amazingly legitimate about sharing the gospel with actions as well as words. When people see Jesus in our actions and in our interactions more than in our words, we say, do we live that way? Do we know Do we know that to be true because we live it out? Do people look at us and see the love of God? Do they see a Jesus who died for them, who gave up his life for them? This is what we read in the book of Romans in chapter 12. This is how we are called to live as Christians. Do not repay repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, Live at peace with everyone. And later in that same chapter it says, Do not overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is not hippie Christianity. It's not advocating a life of lying down and not standing up to those who do wrong. It's not a suggestion that it's okay to be walked all over, or that we don't hate what is evil and wrong in our world. But it does show us how we should respond to that evil. In love, by modeling Jesus in all situations, by having hearts that seek after goodness, holiness and love rather than justice or retribution. Back at the start, I suggested that there were three types of people and probably three types of response to Jesus' message in the Sermon on the Mount. And I would suggest that even 2,000 years later, there are pretty much the same three responses to Jesus' message. Firstly, there were the ones who rejected him outright. In those days, the Pharisees and teachers of the law, mostly. Secondly, there was the majority, those who saw a crowd gathering and got involved, who most most likely left thinking to themselves, well, that was a nice day out, didn't he speak well? But then in their apathy, never allowed themselves to be impacted or changed by Jesus' words. And thirdly, there were the followers and disciples who concluded these words are life-changing, transformative, worth building our lives upon. I'm going to take these words and let them change my heart. And I acknowledge that there'll be some of us here this morning who are in the first group who reject Jesus and his teachings I also think that there's a large number of us who hear Jesus' message and read the words of the Bible 
and respond in apathy. Those are nice words. That was a nice service. We might not even be fully aware of that happening. We've heard this so many times. We've been here so many times. It washes over us. Or we don't think that we need changed hearts. Can I encourage everyone this morning to consider what group most resembles your current attitude towards Jesus? If you're not in the third group, the group who say these words are life-changing, transformative, worth building our lives upon, then what is stopping us? These words are Jesus' guidance on how to live our lives for him. So let's hear them, apply them, and be changed by them. Let's pray together, and let's pray that God will shape and change our hearts so that we can respond to situations that arise in our lives in a way that is pleasing to him, that shows his love to a world that really needs to hear it and witness it. Father God, we thank you for the Bible. We thank you for church. We thank you that we are able to come into this place and in freedom sing our songs of praise and worship to you, that we can pray to you, that we can celebrate communion, that we can read your word. We thank you for your word, and we pray that you will create in us clean hearts, renew our spirits. Father God, we praise you for the work of your son on the cross, that we can know you personally because of Jesus and his sacrifice. We thank you for the forgiveness that we can know through that. I pray, Father God, that your word will transform us, change our hearts, help us to live as salt and light in our world, help us to respond in a way that is pleasing to you. I pray that when you look at our hearts, you'll be pleased with the change, the transformation that you see in us, that you'll be pleased with how we approach others and how we approach situations in our lives, responding not, in, not out of duty, not in legalism, but out of love, love for you. Amen.